we're doing our conventional form, aren't we? No, it's totally different. Welcome back. It's episode 155 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. I'm Troy Sinek, here with Richard Epstein and John Yu. And if you're listening to the podcast version of this broadcast, I should note this is a different kind of episode for us, not only because Richard has failed to silence his phone, but because we are recording this as part of the No Dumb Questions series at Ricochet, where Law Talk started back in 2011. So we welcome everyone from Ricochet who's here with us at watching tonight. And I should note for the audience that is listening, the reason I bring this up is it changes the dynamic a little bit in two ways. One is that this will actually allow us to take some questions from the Ricochet audience as we go on. We'll do that in a little bit. The second is that we can see each other, which is just as disconcerting as you would think it is. John is in some fancy highfalutin hotel suite in what I assume is a less reputable part of Switzerland, probably known for illicit financial transactions. Richard, uh, describe the scene behind you. You're in where? Chicago? New York? No, I'm in New York. The scene behind me is a bucolic picture of little white boats in a wonderful area. And the reason we have it on the wall is it's nice, but it's especially appropriate now because we're doing this a broadcast at a very odd hour so that I could tomorrow go off to the Aegean and uh, basically go on a boat that looks a little bit bigger than those. These are high-class problems you have. Can I tell you guys what I did? I'm gonna, I have saved this reveal. You have not seen this yet. If I move my shoulder ever so slightly, oh, I think the microphone blocks it. There is a, there is a galley copy of my forthcoming book in the background. I have oh, already I started. Was, I thought it was erotic uh, art you had over your I mean, shoulder. That's uh, Cleveland? Uh, it's, it's not an either or, John. It is not an either or. Grover Cleveland is coming back to life. Yeah, I'm getting ready for the promotional circuit. It's not a big deal, but everybody can pre-order a man of iron on Amazon. He's the hero of Joe Biden because of his belief in balanced budgets. Did you know that? I don't think that's true, Richard. Okay. Neither do I. So um, obviously the reason we're taking this unusual step of getting together on a Sunday night is because we just got the final Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, the case out of Mississippi, overturning Roe and Casey and sending the abortion issue back to the states. Now, we talked a lot about the issues involved here in our last show, which we had done right after the the draft opinion had been leaked. And so I want to spend the balance of the conversation here focusing on playing this forward, talking about sort of what comes next. But the one thing from the opinion that I really would like to hear you guys unpack is this argument sort of at the core of, of it over substantive due process in unenumerated rights. So you've got Justice Alito, in the opinion, saying abortion isn't referenced in the Constitution. And yeah, there are things that are not explicitly in the Constitution that are protected, but the way that you suss those things out is by looking back at the history and where there's a long track record of them being protected. And abortion doesn't pass that test, he says, because for most of American history, it's criminalized. Definitely doesn't have any sort of consensus protection. And so this is a perennial constitutional debate. What what things that aren't explicitly mentioned in the text of the document get protections? Richard, I want to start with you. What do you make of the intellectual framework that Alito is using here? Is this the the same sort of standard that you would have used? This is the standard that has been used pretty much by virtually everybody until we came up with the living constitution. Uh, The reason you have to have the two 
parts is that constitutional doctrines are somewhat porous in the sense that they purport to cover a lot of things in great detail, but it turns out that nonetheless, there are lots of gaps in the Constitution which have to be filled by one device or another. So to give you just some areas that illustrate this, we do not have any clear provision in the Constitution which tells us which branch of government is in charge of recognizing foreign nations, and the cases and the opinions have flip-flopped on that. The entire development of the police power is limited on the Bill of Rights is nowhere in the Constitution, and it's been developed uh, through judges. And the entire system of unconstitutional conditions, the rules would say when the government gives a grant what can and cannot attach, all of that has been developed. And so uh, you have to have that part of the Constitution. The question then is how do you discipline it? And I think there are two ways in which you can do this. One which I'm always quite partial to is you sort of think of the basic structure of the Constitution, uh, putting slavery and stuff like that aside, a big if. And it's basically a kind of a limited government classical liberal doctrine. And so you construe things like the police power and unconstitutional conditions uh, to make sure that private parties are not going to be able to use force or fraud or monopoly. And you're going to limit the ability of the government to use its own monopoly powers. So when you come to Roe and you start to apply that framework, well, there's certainly nothing in the document itself which refers to abortion or even by implication does. Freedom to abort is not the equivalent of freedom of contract, for example if you look at the due process clause. Uh, so you can get it there. And then when you have an unbroken history of criminality, uh, you have to understand what's going on. And the one sentence answer is, look at a picture of a fetus at 15 weeks and look at an empty uterus and they don't look the same way. And that has always been the traditional view that the fetus to some extent is a baby inside the mother. This creates immense complications uh, in terms of what the mother can and cannot do because she's entitled to take into account her own welfare as in case where they're dangerous to health and so forth. But she also has to take into account the welfare of her child just as she would after birth. The dynamic changes, but there it sits. So what's happened is Alito goes to this framework. It's quite clear he doesn't tend to be exhaustive. There are many difficult cases that arrive, even if you believe that abortion is not fully protected. Can you abort to save the life of a mother from imminent peril? What about defective children, children of rape, incest, and things of that sort? He's not interested in that. He's only interested in the provision which says that you can't abort at will. And there's no question if you look at this as a kind of a textual and interpretive situation, I think he's probably right with respect to that. In fact, I think he's been right for 49 years because back in uh, 1973, when I was asked by the late Professor Phil Curlin to write about the abortion case, uh, that was my reaction then. I thought that forget about institutional competence, the protection of an unborn baby is something which the state is allowed to take into account. And I don't think it's something that you could gloss over. So I'll stop there because I suspect John has a somewhat different view. Well, first, I want to bring to the attention of listeners that Richard Epstein owes me a dollar because when we had our podcast after the Dobbs oral argument, we bet a dollar on whether the court would overturn Roe versus Wade or not. And I said they would. You said that. But, 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 but no, Richard, before you pull out your dollar, we have been suffering, suffering <laughs> in this era of Biden nomics. So because of inflation, I want one of these. <laughs> It's got to be That's $100. Franklin. That's got a $2 bill. Two zeros, right? Because no, I, this is I the only way I can fill up a gas tank these days out here in California. Is that my dollar? How that, are you going to well, get it Well, it will me? be at some point. Can you, you Venmo it? You have to it? grab it out of my hands, but I will graciously yield. 
can the records show that I have finally won a dollar off of Richard Epstein. This is awesome. This is one of the proudest moments in my academic career. There's, there's a there's a question. It's a pretty bad career. Which I, <laughs> That's why it's a highlight. It's a dollar. It's a highlight. There's a, there's a question here, John, that we have uh, from a viewer, from a listener, that I believe is directed at you. It doesn't specify, but on on Michael Medved show, did you do Michael Medved show recently, John? Uh-huh, on, okay, uh, so this is this is for you. On Michael Medved show, I understood you, John, Uh-oh. to say that Congress cannot pass a law to legalize abortion because the Supreme Court overturned Dobbs. Did I misunderstand? This was a question I was actually going to put to both of you, because this is cutting both ways. You're hearing Democrats talking about codifying Roe. You are hearing some Republicans talking about uh, a federal prohibition, although I think the people who are attributing that to Mike Pence actually misread what Pence said, because it's very clear if you read the quote, he's talking about leading an effort in all 50 states as distinct from federalizing it. But you are hearing these federal approaches on both sides, how much power does the federal government have given the logic of this decision at this point to do anything like that? So I, I think uh, in the sense, in the way that President Biden described it, the court would strike a law like that down. Uh, there's a, not to belabor this, there's a case called City of Bernie versus Flores, which was about a statute that tried to reverse one of Justice Scalia's opinions. Justice Scalia issued this decision narrowing the right of free exercise of religion. Congress passed a law that basically said we are overturning that decision. And the court in City of Bernie versus Flores said, you know, the Congress can do lots of things. It can use its own powers to advance its own constitutional vision. It can... Um, you know, use its spending power, can use its taxing power in different ways. But what it cannot do is just try to overturn a decision of the Supreme Court. And so there are people out there, there are conservatives who say, well, why couldn't we use the Commerce Clause? In fact, liberals are saying the same thing. Liberals are saying, why can't we use the Commerce Clause to make abortion required? And there are conservatives who say, why can't we use the Commerce Clause to ban abortion throughout the country? That's another case called Morrison versus United States. And that fought, that was, I think, probably the tightest limit the court has drawn on the Commerce Clause, which says that uh, this was a case where Congress was trying to use the Commerce Clause to advance an expanded vision of gender rights. And the court said, you can use commerce to regulate economic activity, but what you can't do is use the Commerce Clause to try to take away from the states their control over things like criminal law, family law, and I would say medical practice like abortion. Whoops. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of controversy about this. Um, uh, and start, of course, with respect to the city of Bernie. What had happened is Justice Scalia, in a case called Smith, had essentially said that the free exercise clause, as it applies to the states, only requires that there be neutrality and ignores the disparate impact. So if you're willing to tell everybody that they have to eat pork, you can tell Jews and Muslims that they have to eat pork because it's a neutral statute of general application. And what the Congress tried to do was to reimpose the constitutional restraint 
on the states. But I'm not at all sure uh, that uh, Smith would apply in the cases where you're not trying to impose a restriction on the states, but rather to authorize a particular practice um, as a matter of federal right um, without trying to involve the states at all. So what would happen is Congress would say, everybody knows that abortion clinics, there are all sorts of things uh, under the Wicker test that clearly are involved in interstate commerce. Uh, what Congress wants to do is to preempt the state action and to grant uh, basically a provision that you can have abortions under certain kinds of circumstances. You're not trying to expand um, uh, the constitutional rights beyond what Congress had said. You're not trying to overturn the court. You're just trying to do this. Um, And Morrison was a case in which they said essentially a dormitory rape is not an activity that takes place in interstate commerce where it's not, but given the scope of abortion clinics and the movement of traffic back and forth across state lines, they could probably do it. So there's going to be a fight on this. I I think it's clear you're not going to be able to get anything on this thing done right now over summer. And so I think the issue will be moot in the following sense. Uh, After we get the next Congress, I don't think that the Republicans will be out of power and they will certainly block anything that is going on. Uh, At the state level, of course, we've already seen things start to happen and in both directions. John, you know much more about this than I do, but I assume there are probably 25 states that have already passed laws in one way or another which are designed either to shut down abortion clinics or to guarantee their continued survival. Is that right? Am I wrong? I read that there's uh, about 13 states that have what are called trigger laws that took effect as soon as Roe versus Wade was overruled to ban abortion. And then, so that's not counting the states that are acting now, like California. Yeah, but there are probably another 15 that that have gone the other way. Triggering towards, yeah, with Roe was overruled to increase abortion rights. Can we talk a little actually about the, the potential limits on the states. So that's the federal side. This, we allow it up to a certain point. We don't allow it. Stuff. Sort of the easy questions, but you're already seeing people ask these other questions in terms of what could a state do to restrict a citizen of, let's say, a very pro, of Mississippi, really pro-life red state from going to a really pro-choice blue state. You've got corporations now. A bunch of corporations have come out in the wake of this decision and said, we will pay for people's transportation to go out of state to get an abortion somewhere. And you've had state legislators talk about, we are going to punish those kinds of corporations for doing that. So what are the limits when it starts getting into these discussions about you know, as- assistance to people getting abortions in another jurisdiction? A state's Kavanaugh actually talks about this in the concurrence, about the, the issue with going across state lines. But walk us through the potential restrictions at the state level. This is one that each of us would rather answer second, right, John? <laughs> you can answer second, Richard. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's funny. Um, this is a this is a question of what's called of what's called extraterritoriality. How far can states go in regulating the activity that occurs abroad outside their states? And this is generally an area where the court has said there's some funny cases involving drugs, involving liquor, um, where the court has said the principle is a state can only regulate the activity within its borders. And it cannot regulate activity that occurs outside its borders. So I think generally there's going to be some complications, especially in Richard's favorite area of taxation. But I think that uh, because states are clearly taxing you for things you, you know, income you make out of, out of state. But it seems to me generally, especially with criminal law, 
for example, if marijuana is legal in California and illegal in Oregon, someone from Oregon can travel to California, use marijuana, and he can't or she can't be punished by Oregon for what they did in California. I think that basic principle of extraterr- against extraterritoriality means that Mississippi cannot publish punish a resident in Mississippi who goes to California to get an abortion and then comes back. I think that I think the court would say that's unconstitutional. Um, look, here's the, the scenario. You may not be able to punish the citizen when they go out of state, but suppose there's a local um, assistance program which is prepared to pay for the ticket so that somebody could go out of state. And that activity takes place inside the state of Mississippi. At that point, the time of extraterritoriality does not apply. Uh, the case that John gives smoke and marijuana somewhere else as opposed to the home state is clear the other way. But suppose what you do in the other state is you then give wire money into this particular state uh, so that the activity has contacts to both states. And the question is whether or not the Mississippi contacts are sufficient. Uh, the principle of extraterritoriality doesn't always tell you about that. So to give you an example where everybody would agree that the crime applies, suppose what you do is out of state, you send some bomb into a particular state is then exploded. Um, you're not going to be, you know, surely going to be punished under the laws of your home state. But if it turns out the punishment in the state target state is richer, my guess is it would do so. There is a long tradition, very confused about so-called effects jurisdiction. So for example, in the antitrust law, you want to rig prices to sales in the United States and you want to do it in the European Union. We assert jurisdiction over these people in terms of our ability to punish them. So the only question is how we manage to serve process on them and bring us into the system. I just I would like to stress that these principles are extremely difficult and they're troubled. The moment you start talking about them in connection with abortion, you add another layer of confusion, anxiety, and despair. And so I think every single one of these things will be litigated. And it's clear to me is that both sides are going to go to the max. That is, the people who want to punish this are going to go after it. The people who want to save it are going to go in the other direction. Uh, So I did not quite foresee this, but when we said we're going to return things to the states, it's quite clear that that when you use the plural, it's not the case that only a single state is going to be involved in a single controversy. Uh, This will get uglier before it gets prettier. I want to ask you guys another question that came through in the Q&A section. This is from a member who goes by Blarg, which is pretty great. (laughs) Blarg? And it reads. It's a Klingon. We're getting our first question from a Klingon. I love it. And it reads, Alan Dershowitz. So, yeah. Another Klingon. Alan Dershowitz suggested that the Dobbs opinion is judicial activism. He says the court only granted cert on the 15 weeks question. This is sort of this is sort of the Chief Justice Roberts concurrence. Yeah. What do you think? John, I'll let you start. Oh god. Well, in the broader scheme, I don't think it's judicial activism to fix an error of judicial activism. So, if there was ever a case of judicial activism, it's Roe versus Wade. You could go through all the reasons that case should not have been decided. Where did this viability test come from? You could go on and on. Roe versus Wade is is really a typical case of judicial activism where the court conjured forth a right that's not in the constitutional text. Alito does a good job of showing how there was no tradition or history of abortion rights in our country up to 1973. And so is it activist to take measures to correct a previously activist division? I don't think so. I think you're just returning returning things to the status quo. If you define something like 
Dobbs' activism, you'll never be able to correct terrible errors, right? Like Brown versus Board of Education was activism, but it corrected the mistake of Plessy. So I, I, that's how I, I view it. I, I don't think this is activism at all. I think it's error correction. Um, I, look, there's a funny term of activism. Usually you mean by that when the court comes in and directs how things should be done. It's a bit more difficult to say that it's judicial activism when you turn things back to the political process rather than otherwise. It may be unwise to do so, and there are many difficulties, but I don't think activism would be that way. To give you another illustration, was it judicial activism in a case like Kilo uh, to say that the legislature can do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, to condemn land? in order to put it to, quote, unquote, a public use. Um, And I don't think that that's an activist decision. I think it's the problem of the passive virtues in which you don't intervene in a case where there is something on the Constitution. And one of the things, Troy, I think that makes this so clear is if you stack this case up against Broome, you'll see that everybody's on exactly the opposite sides on this question, right? There is a specific textual commitment in terms of the case of bearing arms. And what the... Now, Democrats are saying this is such a complicated problem. We should never grant a constitutional right in this case. It's just too complicated. We turn it to the legislature. And then when you get to abortion, oh, my God, this is so absolutely clear that it's a woman rights. It's her uterus. She can do what she please. How could you possibly think that this is a matter for legislative discretion? So I think on all of these issues, it turns out there's a little bit of opportunism. And I'll say the following thing. I regard the Brun case as actually relatively easy, assuming that you think Heller is right, which I don't, and McDonald's is right, which I don't. But if you're talking about just the question of the right to keep and bear arms, uh, it seems to me that you have a very heavy burden to explain why it is you're going to say that people can't carry a weapon outside their home. You may be able to impose restrictions of the sort which says they have to know how to be of a certain age, they can't have a criminal record, they have to have instruction on how these firearms to be used and all the rest of that stuff. But I don't think of that as a form of activism, even though what's going on there is you're striking down a law. So what we do is we cheapen the currency in all these cases. And what you really have to do is to actually go through the analysis. And they're completely different than the two cases, because Roe, you're making the thing up out of whole air. And at least in the gun cases, you have a specific test to which you can then use. And then the balancing of interest, correct me if I'm wrong, John, is very similar to what we do in the First Amendment area with respect to speech. Is this speech something which is protected? Or is it so incendiary that it's likely to blow up a bomb and that we can strike it down? Balancing tests are part of every constitutional right. Right. And I think, therefore, in this particular situation, we have to be extremely careful. I don't like these kinds of charges. What I would rather see is somebody explain why Alito got it wrong. And I've read a lot of attacks on him, but they're mainly of the sort which says indignation, frustration and outrage, as opposed to saying he got the constitutional framework wrong. He made a mistake in the way in which he treated earlier cases. It's a very low key opinion, very forceful, but very low key. And the response has not been to take him on point by point. It's just to denounce him. Ironically, in some ways, the real hatred, at least among certain precincts of the left, has now turned to Justice Thomas. Yes. A surprise, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Because, so it's very interesting. When you read the decision by Alito, Alito goes out of his way to say, "This, this is only abortion. This only applies to abortion. The stakes are different here because we're talking about a human life. The Kavanaugh concurrence looks very much the same. It's, hey, guys, don't worry. This stops here. And then Justice Thomas's 
concurrence says, you know what? I think substantive due process is kind of a fiction. And I think all those cases that you're worried about, like Griswold and Lawrence and Obergefell, they're probably wrong. We should think about revisiting this at a certain but point. But can I explain why it so, actually goes to what Richard's point was? Yeah, so that? I actually, John, there's actually two prongs of this that I want you to answer. One. Ouch. One prong is bad enough, but well, two really hurt. For, Don't stick them in the backside. For, <laughs> our, for our friends on the left. Do, do the probabilistic analysis. How realistic is it that anything like this would actually happen in terms of revisiting these cases? But then also the substantive analysis. Why does Justice Thomas have such a bee in his bonnet over this? First, I, I, I cannot see Kavanaugh going along or Roberts going along with reexamining Obergefell, right. which is the gay marriage case, or Lawrence versus Texas, which is the uh, homosexual sodomy case, or Griswold, which is the contraceptives case. But what I think uh, is going on, it goes to Richard's point. Richard's, Richard has a point about the Second Amendment cases. If you look at the Second Amendment, the text could be read to only protect the right to have of a state to have an armed militia. And if you look closely at Heller, Justice Scalia essentially says the Second Amendment only makes sense against the background of an unenumerated right, that of the right of self-defense, the right to defend your life, which you do not surrender when you cross from the state of nature into civil society. Right? So Thomas unlike Scalia, doesn't feel that contradiction because Thomas does believe there are unenumerated rights. He's not uncomfortable saying that in the Second Amendment case, but what he said in this opinion was, but where do they come from? Because we've just said that they don't come from the due process clause. So if they don't come from the due process clause, they got to come from somewhere else. And that's what Thomas's opinion is about. He's trying to just say, and, and, and for those who follow this, he thinks unenumerated rights, and I think he's correct about this. I thought this before I clerked for him, <laughs> is that they come from the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which the court unfortunately read uh, to be a nothing burger in uh, the slaughterhouse cases. And that's why all the constitutional tension had to find some other place, because the court got it wrong so long ago. But I think that the probability of I, – I could actually see the court over the next 10 years starting to replace the Due Process Clause and start to dig more deeply into what were the privileges and immunities of citizens in 1868 at the time of the 14th Amendment. Um, but I don't think politically Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts would let the conservative majority go that far and actually overturn these precedents. And, he, and look, never even Alito happen. says he's not interested in doing it. In it's not going to happen. Let me go back to the substance of due process, because I have a much more, uh, shall we say, idiosyncratic view on that. Um, substantive due process in connection with Roe back in 1973 was intimately associated with substantive due process in connection with Lochner against New York, the case which essentially announced that it was improper for a state to impose a statute which limited the amount of time that a certain class of bakers could work to 10 hours a day and 60 hours hours a week. And everybody said, where do you find that in the Constitution? And the answer that was given at the time was kind of twofold. One is that when we start talking about liberty, the concept of liberty includes not only the liberty uh, to walk around, but it includes the liberty to contract with other individuals. And in fact, if you sort of put yourself in the extreme case, you say, I'll tell you what, we're not going to do anything to you except that you can't buy or sell anything for the rest of your life because you don't have any contractual protections under the Constitution. 
Constitution. Nobody would accept that. So then what they did is they say, oh, it really does cover. And in a breathtaking move, they said, and when we say the words without due process of law, we really mean without just compensation. That got us into the rate-making cases. And then we got into these other cases. And the ground is kind of like follows. Uh, You say it's not a substantive matter. It's just a procedural matter. But every time you skew the procedural rules, why do you care about it? The answer is because it changes the substance. You give me a loaded court and I have a 50% chance of winning a case worth $100 and now it's down to 20%. It's like taking $30 out of my pocket. And if that's the case, then the line between procedural and substantive due process isn't as clear. And so in Lochner, the way it went was very different. It said, look, we've got this right. And why are you trying to restrict it? And in the end, they said, you can't do this. And I agree with them. Uh, Competition cannot be displaced by uh, monopoly, which is what the labor unions were trying to do. And this is not a case of people being incompetent so that paternalism would take a role. When you got to Roe, the argument was very different. Sure, you have the freedom to do with your body, but now the health and safety of the infant is a police power justification that was missing in Lachlan. So when I wrote my 1972 paper, it was kind of comical. Phil Curlin was a great believer in the traditional view, so he gave it the substantive due process title. If you read the paper, I was reading it somewhat differently. I said, I believe in substantive due process, but this is a case in which the defenses are stronger than the prima facie case. So I think it's perfectly okay for uh, to have this. And I disagree with Justice Thomas that substantive due process is an empty vessel. Historically, it's never been there. Um, but what happens is if you look at it historically, all the cases he's talking about were generally caught by a very intrusive, highly paternalistic view of uh, morals head of the police power. And so the battle in many cases is that at the time of Griswold, people thought that you know, sex outside of marriage, contraceptives were all part of the morals. And then premarital sex of one kind or another, homosexuality, or morals had fully delegated to the state under the 19th century view. And under the 20th century view, uh, all of a sudden the economic liberties disappear constitutionally, and the morals head uh, essentially becomes uh, irrelevant either, and you get it. So there's a kind of reversal. And I'm more of a 19th century guy, guy on these issues than the 20th. So I think you have this very large tangle that it's very difficult uh, to undo. Uh, so I would start to say the same. My view is I think it's much more important to return to Lochner and to strike down the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act. And looking at this guy's on the Supreme Court, I think I lose 10 to nothing, even though there are only nine justices. A familiar sensation. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, Justice Pitney's no longer with us, right, Troy? (laughs) Alas, alas for your purposes. Here's a really really good question uh, from the audience. This also another great handle, judge, one word, mental, two words, judge, mental. This is the the question. And the question is, uh, Oops, he's got two. I was about to read the wrong one. The question I wanted you guys to answer, Susan Collins said last week that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, quote, misled her when they told her that Roe was president. Did they? Look, my view is it was president, but I don't think it necessarily follows that you can't overturn precedent. There's also, I think, something about this question, which is actually much more dangerous, which is you ask a question and suppose you say, yeah, I do think it's precedent. 
Is this a binding commitment that on the confirmation hearing you have to commit as a judge to what it is you said? At that particular point, you can't change your mind and your judicial independence is done. I think the process is always the same. You can do what you want and you can do and question and so forth. But once you're on the court, the system becomes absolutely impossible to run. If people can start going back to the statements that people made and say uh, that they're somehow or other cheating on it. Now, this is not a question of Democrats or Republicans. I would feel the same way about everybody. I think it's absolutely essential and that when a judge gets on a court, there are no prior commitments of any sort or kind uh, that bind them in the course of their deliberations. And I mean, what Ms. Collins is saying is obviously a political remark because she was the decisive vote for Kavanaugh. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, the correct way to think about these things is you could take it for whatever it's worth. But once you're on the Supreme Court, you're duty bound to rethink the case on the basis of new information. John? I, I think it's a good example of how um, Roe distorted so much in our constitutional and political system that every confirmation hearing was really just an effort to find out whether someone would overturn Roe. You get all these complicated questions about precedent, all these complicated questions about unenumerated rights. All anybody really was trying to figure out was whether someone would overrule Roe. And I would, I would actually go further. There's uh, something Lincoln said about how judges, you know, nominees should not promise to, you know, how they will decide cases. And he said we should despise anybody who would promise how they would decide cases. And I, I agree. That I think someone would be unfit for judicial office if they're being interviewed by Senator Collins. And that judge said, I prom- that nominee said, I promise never to overrule Roe. That is not the kind of that's that's not a that's not a judge. That's a legislator. Are either of you willing to go out on the limb that confirmation hearings may actually improve now? Or, or, no, do you, no. or do you think yes. abortion will just get I, read back into the conversation in the other direction? No, I think yeah. I'm going to put it in the following way. I'm against having candidates or nominees testify for exactly this problem. So, I mean, the first You're person... But they have testif- to, Richard. They have to. No, they you do now. But you can't know, refuse for, to testify. I think Felix Frankfurt was the first person who ever actually appeared before the committee. And look at what a disaster that was. Well, I mean, and, and, and the reason why you're so uneasy about this is the moment you make these guys mute and silent, you can't try to exact promises for them. And I think it's a serious problem. And what do you learn? What did you learn from the Bork hearing? Well, you learned that Senator Biden and Senator Kennedy were very effective in sabotaging nominees. Now, maybe he should have gone down on the basis of the written record. There were lots of things that one could say against him. But I really have come to doubt this. And if anything, my concerns are even greater because of what Ms. Collins had said. Um, than it would have been if nobody had said anything about it. Because we can basically hear the next person coming and said, look, um, we will think it to be an impeachable offense, right? If you deviate from the promise that you make before this committee, uh, that would be just a wonderful way to continue the independence of the But I don't blame the senators for asking. That is the fault of the Supreme Court, too. When you nationalize and judicialize abortion, so the only way you can change abortion policy in the country is by changing the who's on the Supreme Court. Well, of course, senators and elected members are going to try to extract promises, badger them, try to stop people who they disagree with, because that's what they would do in normal legislation. But you're right, Richard. I also think judges, nominees should refuse to answer the questions. They have to turn up for the hearings, but they can say, look, you don't have to confirm me, but I can't answer you know, yeah, against I mean, my ethics look, to answer questions and promise how I'm going to vote. 
And so I think Kavanaugh, I saw what Collins said, Kavanaugh said, and what Kavanaugh said was, I think Rose a very important precedent. He never promised to overturn the decision. Oh, and, not to overturn. Yeah, he just said, yeah, I think that's, it's an important that's, precedent. That's, I'm I, sorry I, if you're offended. Yeah. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, you're sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree it would be nice, but look, this is not just abortion. The next time around, it's going to be campaign finance, or it's going to be affirmative action, or it's going to be guns again in some way. Uh, there will always be a hot button issue, and there will always be the temptation to do it. I think abortion I, I'm was very much like, like John. I think if you do testify, mum's the word, uh, but at which point you're going to be abused for your silence because you could have answered, whereas under my system, if you're not there, all they can do is they can shake a stick at an imaginary person who's not sitting in front of them. It's not going to happen. I mean, one understands that. But I thought, you know, thinking back, the Frankfurt precedent was not there. Take somebody like Brandeis, who was a highly controversial nominee back in 1916. It was a five-day hearing, and he never showed up. And, you know, maybe not so crazy. But that's water under the dam. But I think what John says is clearly right. Uh, there's going to be efforts. There are going to be efforts to catch them at the hearings. But more than that, there's going to be the other question. And I'm, I'm curious what anybody's thinking is, suppose somebody says, we'd like you to go on NBC tonight or on cable TV since you are the nominee and let the American public meet you. Do you do that? I think the I, answer I, is no. I would do that instead of showing up for an inquisition in the Senate. Well, depending. Well, I mean, so you do the <laughs> hearing on Fox or on CNN, but you don't do it on both. No, no, you do both. But I think that you I think now that the senators have turned this into a circus, you go to the American people directly. <laughs> so I actually think that I, this is why I actually think there could be some uh, benefit to all this is if Roe is not on the books anymore and nominees are not going to affect it. I don't know if the American people are going to care about the Supreme Court as much as they used to. And they're not going to pressure people in the Senate to get this person or block that person as much as they used to. And maybe we might get back to, you know, Brandeis land, which Richard wants to return to. I think there'll be more attention on the Supreme Court. I mean, I always like to remind people of the New York Times coverage of the nomination of Potter Stewart in 1957 when I was a lad of 14. And this is what the coverage was. It was an eight page eight column paper at the time. And in the lower left column at about four inches, it's sort of read. Eisenhower nominates Sixth Circuit judge for Supreme Court. By the time we got the Scalia, it was a banner headline. Right? I don't so even I want to know how you know that was what the headline was in 1957. There's just a I pile have, of New York Times. suspicion that you remember it. <laughs> in the next room over from him, I guarantee you, there's a pile of New York Times dating back no, to the no, no, entire don't Eisenhower <laughs> anthology. Let me, ask you, let me ask you guys a question about the, the institutional dynamics on the court, because I feel like this has not gotten enough attention. So Justice Alito writes this opinion. Justice Alito also writes this very entertaining uh, concurrence in the gun case where his parting gift to Justice Breyer is to just rip apart Justice Breyer's dissent in the gun case. And it's really so he's loaded for bear. You go back a couple years ago, Justice Alito is writing the um, the Janus opinion. When Alito yeah. came on the court, probably partially because it was right after Roberts. I think the sort of popular sense of it was that he was sort of low-key, garden-variety conservative. 
and it's going to be undis- is probably going to be one of the Supreme Court justices whose name you are least likely to know. And very quietly, it's very interesting. If you remember when Justice Scalia died, the first time that Justice Thomas said a word at oral argument, it was a national news story. But this much more substantive development, tell, tell me if, if you think this is totally off base, but I've watched these developments the past couple of years, and it seems like Justice Alito is quietly becoming sort of the intellectual steam engine of the most conservative part of the court. Is that fair? I think on these cases, yes, because he's much more consistent uh, than is um, Gorsuch. I mean, Gorsuch wrote, got Bostock and he wrote McFall, whatever it is, McGill, uh the Indian rights case and McGirt. the... McGirt, and he also wrote uh, various opinions on criminal procedure. So he's going to be regarded as a little bit more flaky. Whereas in terms of methodology, Alito is quite traditional, and he's become extraordinarily forcible. And unlike Thomas, who has some highly idiosyncratic views on substantive due process, on dormant commerce clause, and so forth, um, I think that he has probably taken, uh, taken the lead. Let me put it this way. One measure of his success or failure is that when my liberal colleagues in the academic provision start the talk or not, uh, Alito is usually the first person whom they want to denounce. Hmm. So I have a different view on Alito. Uh, I think this will be his greatest opinion, the one he's most known for. And uh, it, it proceeds in a very straightforward, it has no flair to it, uh, except for the, remember we talked about this one at leaked. the first six pages or so, the very beginning is very personal, not personal, but it's very uh, strongly worded. It's not clerk language, but I've, I've followed Alito, uh, you know, the whole time he's been on the court from his appointment. I thought it was a good appointment, but I think I have trouble figuring out what his jurisprudence is. I think he's very conservative. Hmm. He's very, uh, you know, he's very traditional. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of like it would be uh, what um, an avatar of Justice Scalia or Judge Bork would have been like had they been on the court without the personality and intellectual flair. He's very workman. And, and, and this Dobbs opinion is very much like that, right? It is very much in the mainstreams of conservative legal thought and the criticism of Roe. There's nothing new in it. There's no, there's no new direction in it. It's I, I still think it's a relatively modest opinion. It goes nowhere near uh, the argument that some conservatives make that actually the Fourteenth Amendment might protect the life of the fetus. Right. That, that that's a hard question. Is if there is life protected by the Fourteenth Amendment, when does life start? Right. He doesn't go anything near near where near that. It's very much more like Bork actually than Scalia in that respect. The Constitution being uh, morally neutral and value free. Um, but I always I have a hard time figuring out what Scalia I'm sorry <laughs> Freudian slip what Alito's um, sort of you know what Alito's distinctive jurisprudence is I, I I don't see one yeah I don't see one yet yeah I mean to, to, to back John's point up you go back and you reread the prophetic descent of Justice Scalia in uh, Casey. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinarily powerful opinion. He says, you guys think that you have solved the problem of abortion by taking it away from the political process. Let me tell you, they will come back to haunt you. If not now, then soon, and you will be in a worse mess than you've ever been before, right? A kind of prophetic doom. There's nothing of that in the Alito opinion. But I'll tell you where I do think Alito is very good. 
I think he's extremely good in dealing with facts that other people tend to be very casual about. And so, you know, when you had the Snyder case about uh, the question of are you disrupting a funeral in a kind of a vicious and ugly fashion, he actually went back, figured out what the common law was on the point and wrote a much more powerful opinion uh, than anybody else on the court because he actually cared about it. When it came to the stolen valor case, if you recall that, where people were peddling medals and pretending to be people they weren't. And the Supreme Court wrote, a, I thought, a silly opinion in which they said, well, since we can't name the person who's been deceived by somebody who's deceiving everybody, we can't stop it when normally diffuse harms known to have occurred are the perfect justifications for state legislation. And I thought Alito really dismantled that in an extremely powerful way. And so I give him a lot of credit for being an extremely strong technician on some of these issues. And I like his opinions because, well, I mean, he's not Malin Pitney, but it's the same kind of tradition, uh, which I think he looks In other words, closely. they just say, boring. <laughs> He's boring. <laughs> no, He's so but, boring. Uh, so is Pitney there. All these guys you like so much no, are so boring. I mean, which, why, do you look, why do opposites attract, Richard? Why do you idealize the most boring people on the Supreme Court? Because they're sound. I mean, <laughs> the, the theatrics you, you would never want to John. have lunch. You would never want to have we lunch with any of these the people. I don't want my judges to be theatrical. I want my commentators to be theatrical. Well, you get, you a, get both, it, John. You let me. We're running out of time, guys. So let me get you some other questions so that we get okay, everybody. Sure. This is one from uh, member Fred C. Dobbs, as it turns out. Do you no. expect that spelled no, the same way? Spelled really? the same and by the way, and remember the guy was named Dobbs in the Treasure of Sierra Madre, right? In the Oh, the, the treasure of the Sierra Madre? Oh, I yes. don't remember. Richard, the, 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 you can't. That, uh, too, too deep a cut for me. Probably wow. too deep a cut for John. No, well, I, but I, I think I I'm right. I mean, I, go check it. Get somebody in. Correct. Well, in the meantime, while I'm pulling up the IMDB listing for Treasure of the Sierra Madre, you can answer this. Do you expect Dobbs, the case, not the guy, to increase the energy on the left to pack the court, even if it can't be done in 2023 or 2024, isn't this something conservatives will have to be aware of for the next generation? Yeah, no. we should pack the court. No, <laughs> no, I, I mean, President Biden just said he wouldn't, he wouldn't support it. Right? He just said yesterday. And, and remember, it. there was a Supreme Court commission, right? And it issued an initial version of the report, which was very powerful against packing, getting both liberals and conservatives. There are a powerful letter headed by uh, two of my students, actually. Mike McConnell was on there, Marie Mahoney on so forth. And it just died. And then they issued a final report, which may have shown a little bit more sympathy to it. It's not coming back again, um, I don't think, because it's just everybody understands that once you open that genie, you're going to end up with a Supreme Court of 49 people on. Can I ask uh, and Richard it, a question? Richard doesn't know what a lightning round is. A lightning rod? <laughs> lightning the round. lightning round. I don't think I specifically said the words lightning round, so he is he oh. is forgiven for that. Okay, okay. but yeah, let, I, let me. I give do know you, what the words mean, and this is like speed dating. Let me yeah, let me exactly. give you just on the court packing point. Let me give you a potential counterfactual, which is that this continues to live on the left wing of the Democratic Party, which means this continues to be a thing that the leftward most candidates for president in the Democratic Party say to distinguish themselves from people who are further to the center. Things like that, and you see the same dynamic on the far right side of the Republican Party, things like that do occasionally sort of build, the silt builds up over the years and they eventually get closer and closer to the mainstream, which I think is what this question was getting at. Not does it happen next week or next year, 
but does it over time? I think it goes further and further away. I mean, look, uh, to put this, I think the first thing that's going to happen is, you know, every single strongly pro-democratic state is going to remain strongly pro-democratic. It's not as though Roe's going to flip them over into the Republican column. Uh, But I think in the long term, the silent votes are basically not going to be with that majority. Take a fairly conservative uh, Hispanic vote. Every single indication we have today is that that vote is moving rightward. And these people are not abortion defenders in any way, shape or form, even if they are or not Catholic practicing. And so what I think is likely to happen is that you will make red states or the blue states even bluer than they were. But I think a lot of purple states will become redder than they've previously been. And, you know, are the Democrats going to push for packing the court when they think they're going to be a minority party? And, you know, John knows better than I. Troy, you're the seer. My guess is the Republicans carry the Senate, you know, 55-45. is not a bad guess. And they probably will get something like, you know, 240, 250 seats in the House. And so none of these things for a couple of years are going to go. And I just don't think afterwards you're going to find another case like Roe that's going to galvanize anything. I think you're a little too high on the Senate, by the way, Richard, but we don't need to do prognostication right now. I will tell you you after the the show, the Republicans seem to be making a lot of mistakes in their nominating contest. Oh, oh, the guy with Missouri and so forth, the morons? Well, that's still, still, that hasn't happened yet. That's not his actual name. Let me ask you this question. I've seen a bunch of variations of this fly by. The one I'm reading is from Sandra, aka Blondie, my friend. I remember Blondie from Ricochet. Um, Well, the first question she asked has already been answered, which is if Richard paid up. But the second one, (laughs) he's still trying to figure out how to use Venmo. I'm waiting. You're going to be waiting waiting. a long time. I've been checking Venmo over and over again. Just have him put it in an envelope. It'll get there faster. Her other question, do you think we will ever know who leaked the draft? You're shaking your head. Not unless they want to be known. It's too easy. I've seen so many things leaked. You've seen them, Troy. Highly classified information. I've leaked Nobody's ever caught. (laughs) <laughs> you don't know most of this good stuff. I think the odds are no, because I think they would have found it out already um, if it had been. My guess is it will be in 40 years, somebody on his deathbed. Will oh, yeah, eventually. Yeah. Well, no, it, it can't be on his deathbed, Richard. It has to be early enough to ch- cash the royalty checks for the book deal. That is how this will play out eventually. Somebody will have a payday off of this. No, no, no. I mean, by that Uh, time, nobody will care. But my own sense about this is, you know, a month after the leak, people were less worried about the leak than they were worried about the decision. Well, so this was going to be my question. This is my overthought galaxy brain take on this. Could you make the case, regardless of the intent of the person who leaked it, that the leak in a way proved beneficial? Here's what I mean. It... The, the people who get most outraged over this perform about this stuff on social media. And social media thrives on novelty. You still saw plenty of that when it came out, but this wasn't a surprise in the way that it would, would have been otherwise. And, and more seriously, I think I may be wrong about this. My instinct is that the American layperson would have told you two months ago when that decision leaked that Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court means that abortion is illegal throughout the country. And it does seem like these last two months created a space for a certain kind of civic learning that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And all these groups were able to mobilize in advance, right? Everybody was able to figure out what their fallback was going to be when this went back to the states. So maybe in its own weird way, it sort of cushioned the social blow of what ended up happening. 
Yeah, Steve Hayward made that point on a podcast I was on with him that it it kind of di- it dispersed the what would have right. been a crazy response if it had just been sprung on the country. I think that's right. I don't think that was the intention of the leaker. No, and it obviously it doesn't a, justify you know, it. Unintended consequence. Yeah. Well, John, I, I is your prediction you. then that this will have a little effect on the election? Troy, yours? Well, right. So can, I was just talking to some friends about this here in D.C. And so you remember the big landslides of 2010 and 94. Uh, yeah. Republicans were polling like tied or plus one in the general generic polls. Right now, before Roe, Ro, uh, before Dobbs, Republicans were, I think, t- polling plus six, which is like never happened in the history of polling on a generic congressional poll. The Republicans are like plus six, which means they're probably really plus 12 or 15. So I don't think it means that the House and Senate stay Democrat. It just might mean we don't have the big landslide we were going to have if Democrats are tactically effective, which I trust them not. I trust them to screw it up and not to be tactically effective in the use of jobs. I don't think people are going to be thinking about this when they go to the Gabas comes in late October and early November. Um, if you try to look at what the Democratic policies are, to describe them as idiotic is to praise them unduly. Uh, but their basic illustration is that we have to maintain all the stuff with respect to greenhouse gases while expanding supply is an impossibility. It cannot work. Um, and so what's going to happen is they're not going to tamp down on that. Uh, they're not going to basically make any other reform. There are certain things they're trying to do through administrative stuff that is going to be just terrible. And I think people will come to understand the way that happened. I think finally Biden will actually go into some criticism, even with respect to Ukraine, for two reasons. Um, It's dragging out too long. He's not prepared to break the blockade, and he's not prepared to use offensive weapons to hit Russian troops inside Russia who are attacking Ukraine. And so I think he's going to lose a little bit more on that framework as well. So I don't think this is going to be an issue that's going to uh, loom very large at the time that the other stuff midterms are about turnout and this might turn out the you know suburban women voters who actually uh who actually voted biden into office over trump the only group that might in fact be moved to the left on this would be suburban women who are conservative on economic matters and liberal on social affairs those are the ones that trump lost between 2016 and 2020 but but he lost them in part because of his boorish behavior I mean, the man who lost the election for Mr. Trump was Rudy Giuliani with his flawless advice in the first debate. He said, I'm not like an obnoxious pig, and that's the way you win the election. To be fair, um, it's, it's worked for me throughout my career. Let me, yeah. let me ask you guys this. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, and we've almost exclusively been talking about Dobbs. We talked a little about the gun case. Didn't even get to January 6th. Um, but Dobbs, the gun case for a few days before it, and part of that, the uh, education case, in Maine, yeah. Carter got a lot of Maine attention. Carson. Yeah, got a, got a lot of attention. Um, but we're right at the end of the Supreme Court session for our for the listeners like me who are not bird dogging this stuff the way that you guys are. What's the most important case that they have not heard of from this session? Oh, easy. West Virginia. Yeah. Explain. Having to do with the best systems of emission reduction in which there was an outlandish opinion below saying that the only way you could fix a piece of machine is to fix the universe. That is, when they started (laughs) to talk about a system, they didn't mean the air conditioning system. They meant the ecosystem. And I think that one is going to be reversed. And that will completely transform the politics on global warming. In the end, the beneficiary will help Biden, at least in the political vein, even though it will stop his short-term agenda. But that case, and it's a technical nightmare, is, I think, surely the most important. Right, John? 
I agree. And it could have an even more profound effect on constitutional law than just on global warming yeah. if the court resuscitates the non-delegation doctrine and says there are limits on how much power Congress is allowed to give away to the agencies. Maybe the Clean Air Act doesn't allow the EPA to do everything just because it says make the air clean. That would that would be uh, an yeah. earthquake for uh, you know the trying yeah, to I, I do think controlling the, the administrative statutory state. arguments are very strong. Yeah, yeah, though, yeah. They may they may not get to it, but if they were. Right. The, the one, if you're historically, if your historians go back and look at the Roberts Court, other than abortion, the other thing I think they'll say is this is a court that tried to tame the administrative state, and this gives them another opportunity, like the other yeah. ones they've been taking advantage of. And, and I think my guess is it will be a fairly strong opinion. The interesting question is, it's interesting know, that's the uh, last. It's, it's last not day. at all clear yeah. to me that this will only be six three. Nah, the I mean, liberals love the administrative state. Well, who, who comes over, sure. Richard? Sotomayor yeah. never comes over. No, we know that. Um, but I think it's look, yeah. sometimes Breyer, but probably not. I think not the most in his likely last day of his term. Yeah, not the last no, day of his I think career. the most likely uh, switch would be from Kagan. You think they love possible? the administrative state. What? I mean, she wrote a very bad opinion in Gundy, I yeah. thought. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it because there was a narrow way in which to strike that thing down. So I, I, I don't put it's a high probability, but I would say 20%. Um, I think, but John, I think, and I think the other six are pretty solid on this one. Um, I mean, of course, there's five votes. There are a- five announced votes to resuscitate the non-delegation doctrine. It's just, they have to find the right case. That'll and, be and- earth shattering for the administrative state. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you could see because the number of people on the left who are writing about how there's no doctrine to begin with um, is extremely large. And the answer, I think, is in many cases, it was so taken for granted that nobody had to invalidate a statute on that ground because most of the time Congress respected the limits that were associated with its operation. Scott wants me to give you guys one last question in here. And this is this is a sneaky lawyer question. I can tell this is from uh, Matt Ward. And it reads, you guys sort of hinted around the edges of this earlier. Is Congress able to ban abortion at the federal level by passing legislation that defines a fetus as a person, thus triggering the protections of the 14th Amendment? Nope. (laughs) What happens is you cannot, by persuasive definition, alter a constitutional right. And so just as you could not design certain things as defamation so that you could start to regulate them, so can't do it. Now, you can make the argument that a fetus is a person in ordinary language. And if you look at any of the baby manuals, that's the way, you know, your baby is now 16 weeks old, right? Um, That's the person language. Uh, And I think you could win on that, but I don't think you'd win on it by stipulation. I I think it's a closer question. I I can see why someone would have this theory because they could say, well, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment gives Congress the right to enforce the amendment, right? The, the provisions of the amendment. By appropriate they, right, legislation. They could say, if you read Dobbs closely, it never, said, it never rejects the argument that the fetus is a person. It leaves it open to the states to decide. So, you know, someone could say, well, why can't Congress in this area where the court has not made a decision – interpret the constitution right this is exactly what the court did in the 1965 voting rights act right they acted in an area where the court had yet to act and designed but you're right richard that i just looking at the way the votes line up i it's i don't think this current lineup would uphold that law but i could this argument does fit within the you know conventional doctrine We've done just it the way the 65 time. voting rights act did 
We do it all the time. Of course, that was a question of whether or not there was a state that was sufficiently impacted that special protections had to be done. And I think in those cases where you're making an administrative classification issue, there's no natural language issue that's going to be at stake. And in fact, it would be the ordinary test as to whether you're going to be far. And when they got to Shelby County, um, you know, 50, you know, in 2013, and they tried the same game again, that's when what Justice Roberts, in a very strong opinion, said, you can't make believe that nothing has changed since 1964, so that it's appropriate today to put restrictions on a bunch of people who have completely changed their outlook. Um, so I don't think they could win on that particular strategy either way. Um, I think you're going to basically they can put it in there and then somebody could argue whether it's true or false, but it would only be an argument. It would not be a decisive conclusion. All right, fellas, it looks like we are at the end of our time. So I want to thank everybody at Ricochet who's here watching, everybody at Ricochet who helped us put this together. The two of you, as usual, and our producer, Scott Emmergut, and everybody listening to the podcast. We will be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. It was 7.59. We were going to send the band out without Hendrix. I mean... Oh, 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 what happened is I had my phone off. <laughs> <laughs>